Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode eight of Cosmos Crusaders. For this episode, Goke and I had the privilege of interviewing Kyle Cavasares, who got his bachelor's in physics at UC Merced and is now finishing up his PhD at UC Irvine. Um, we had a really great time talking to him, and I think both of us learned a lot, but we're just going to go ahead and before we start our episode, talk a little bit about some of the takeaways that we had um, from our conversation with Kyle. So, Gok, if you want to go a little bit into that. Yeah, Kyle was a really interesting person to talk to, for sure, and we both learned a lot from his interview. Um, and one thing in particular that he mentioned that he wanted to talk about that I thought it would be good if we highlighted in the intro was this article that he sent to us. Um, it was on NPR and it was called Southeast Asians are underrepresented in STEM, the label Asian boxes them out more. And it was by Deepa Shivaram. So the article, which was very interesting, I learned a lot from it. Um, and sort of its main takeaway was that many Southeast Asian American groups, including Hmong, Vietnamese, Filipino, Laotian, Cambodian Americans, they all end up falling under the broad category of Asians when it comes to sort of applying to like graduate school, fellowship applications, and jobs. But their experiences in the United States often vary greatly in general from other Asian groups that are sort of not underrepresented in STEM, like Indians, Chinese, Japanese, and Koreans, for example. So a quote from the article, which I thought was very interesting, um, that sort of summed up the situation well, was from Janelle Wong, who was a professor of Asian American studies at the University of Maryland. And she said, while they, regarding Asian groups that usually aren't underrepresented in STEM, do often face implicit bias on campuses, they're not facing systemic exclusion access to higher education. Um, so they go on to give an example specifically about Filipinos um, as they experience what's called downward intergenerational mobility. Um, so the article says that this means that U.S.-born Filipinos are actually less likely to obtain a bachelor's degree than their foreign-born parents. So programs and efforts that boost and lift up groups that are often underrepresented in higher education STEM should include groups like Filipinos and other Asian minorities that have sort of this downward intergenerational mobility but they often don't as they're categorized broadly under the Asian category. So the article goes on to talk about how this actually doesn't only impact higher education and sort of the workforce, but also other fields such as medicine, since Filipino women have high rates of hypertension and diabetes and other risk factors that can impact childbirth, but they're actually rarely considered for the types of resources that are needed for safe birthing at pregnancy, since they are also grouped under sort of the broader category of Asian. So yeah, so the article says that a way that we can sort of solve these issues is through data, data disaggregation in the Asian community, which means that we would actually collect more specific data on Asian subgroups rather than just grouping people together from the entire continent as sort of like an Asian category. Um, so yeah, that was the article that Kyle sort of linked to us, and I just wanted to highlight that. Um, I thought it was really interesting, especially from the perspective as one of the groups that isn't underrepresented in STEM as an Indian. Um, I think that quote from the University of Maryland professor really did sum it up well as I do, I have found I've faced like implicit biases on um, occasions, but as I'm not like systemically sort of excluded from the field um, because of my ethnicity, which is something that other um, minority groups within the Asian community do feel. And Kyle talks about this in his interview. So yeah, that was one thing that I sort of wanted to highlight before we get into his interview. Um, so yeah, um, Simi, have any other thoughts? Not really. I think you sum it up well, and Kyle talks about it a little more in depth about the reasons that he thinks that this is the case. And it's really interesting to get his perspective, especially as someone who is really part of the most minority, one of the most minority groups in STEM. So yeah, I hope you guys all enjoy talking or like listening to our conversation as much as we enjoyed having it with him and that you can all get some good takeaways as well. Yeah, so we'll get right into the interview now. So thanks, everyone. Hey, hi, everyone. Welcome back. This is now episode eight of Cosmos Crusaders, and we're very excited to have Kyle Cabasares on the show. Uh, Kyle is a PhD candidate in the Physics and Astronomy Department at UC Irvine. He already got his master's in physics um, from UC Irvine, and he graduated from UC Merced with a bachelor's of science in physics. And he also has a very popular YouTube channel, which we will also get into. So yeah, welcome to the show, Kyle. 
Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We're just, oh, well, thank you. Sorry, I wanted to say thank you as well. But um, we're just going to start off by talking a little bit about your research. So we know that you kind of study black holes, but that could be super broad. So why do you mind like telling us more about the details about it? Yeah, of course. So um, I guess the simplest way I could describe my research is that I weigh supermassive black holes. Um, typically, I study the most massive kinds of black holes, the supermassive kind, um, in the most massive types of galaxies. So actually, um, the picture you see, I guess, over here, that's one of the galaxies that I um, weighed its central black hole. And typically how you do that is that these galaxies, we've sort of looked with the Hubble Space Telescope, and we've seen that they have these um, really round and smooth sort of dust and gas disks at their centers. And um, a good portion of the time, or maybe not a good portion, but some portion of the time, these gas disks have really nice, uh, clean rotation. And we know from like introductory physics that if you have like a massive um, object, like for example, the sun, and then you have smaller objects like planets orbiting it, you can infer the mass of the big thing, like the sun, based on the motions of like the planets. And so same principle applies where we have, in our, my case, we have gas that's rotating around uh, the black hole, and we can use the speed of that gas to work out how massive it must be. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, Kyle. Um, I got a very detailed uh, presentation of your research at AAS a couple of months ago. So uh, I remember. <laughs> yeah, that was you did a really good job on that iPoster. So that was Thank awesome you. to hear. Um, so yeah, I guess I was also I was wondering. Um, I know that you recently published a paper. So mm -hmm. if you could sort of get into what specifically you found in that paper and the results. Oh, yes, of course. So it's funny you mentioned that. I actually have a copy of it like right here. Um, so, um, oops, sorry, I mentioned my thing. But I don't know if you can read the title, but it says Black Hole Mass Measurements of Early Type Galaxies, NGC 1380 and 6861 through ALMA and HSC Observations and Gas Dynamical Modeling. I know it's a very long title. Um, NGC 1380 is the galaxy you see back there. Um, so yeah, um, basically these two galaxies were studied by pretty much the last person in our research group at UC Irvine who got their PhD. And what he found was that these galaxies contain, like I said, these sort of round and circumnuclear rotating gas disks at the center and uh, determined that these two galaxies would be good candidates to um, weigh their black holes. Just as a bit of an aside, you know, why would we even want to do that? Um, there's um, ideas in astrophysics that black holes and the galaxies that they reside in influence each other's life and grow together throughout the age of the universe. And one indicator of that is the masses of these black holes are um, correlated. There are these sort of relations that connect the mass of the black hole to several large-scale properties of the host galaxies. And so um, getting reliable mass measurements um, is important for us to understand the fundamental connection between black holes and their host galaxies. So that's just as, as an aside. But for these two galaxies, um, these two actually were kind of interesting in, in, in different ways. So um, both of them have quite a bit of dust in their center. And one of the things that you need to do when you're weighing um, a black hole is you need to have a model for essentially the gap, like the pretty much the mass of the galaxy it resides in, at least for the innermost part. So the way that um, that works is that we typically take a, a Hubble Space Telescope image, kind of like the image you see behind me, but maybe in a different um, filter. And we try and model how bright the um, center of that galaxy is. Um, and that's how we create a model for sort of the, the host galaxy. And then we have to essentially correct for the presence of dust. So you probably see there's like this dust, dusty ring um, in this galaxy back here. And that was actually the thing that took the most time for me to, to deal with because um, dust is a notoriously uh, complex thing to model in astrophysics. It, there's a lot of um, just complicated equations and um, like just really complex models you need to, to really get all the details right. Um, which I didn't actually do, but no one else really has in the field. So um, when, when it comes to making these measurements, so I think I'm okay with that. But yeah, essentially I had to figure out how to like really handle, you know, accounting for this 
this amount of dust in the center because if you don't you get very different answers for black hole mass like the the uncertainty on the measurement for NGC 1380 for example was about 40 percent which is um better than past measurements of, of other kind of galaxies but not as good as in the best cases but that's kind of um that's kind of the point of my work was that that this is a big um, uncertainty um, in measuring these masses, sort of the presence of dust and how it could influence the final measured value. Um, the other galaxy, 6861, had another interesting feature was that it just didn't have any like gas in the center at all, as in there is gas, but it's not like very close to the black hole. And so in that case, we still could build a model to try and explain its rotation but the, the range on the black hole mass was quite large. So pretty much got anything between one and three billion times the mass of the sun. So that's like a factor of three difference. There was a previous measurement that said it was about two ten, uh, two billion. So I guess my, 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 my big range did encapsulate the previous measurement. But um, yeah, those are, that's sort of the main takeaways of, of this paper, I think. It was uh, It's not so much that these are very precise measurements, but more so explaining why they're not so precise and sort of, sort of pitfalls that... Um, you can run into if you try and measure black holes in these systems. That sounds really interesting and probably going to be really helpful for like the future of the field when people try to work on the same stuff as you. So that's awesome. But for, for me, like I'm not an astrophysicist. <laughs> um, so I just have like some trouble conceptualizing like how big these black holes really are. So like what are some like how do you describe that what are some of the small smaller ones that you've seen what are the bigger ones and like how do they relate to like earth or or something more more visible i guess yeah yeah that's a that's a really um good question i wish i had some numbers offhand because I, I did this calculation like not that long ago but um effectively like the smallest black holes in, in astronomy at least um that um, and I don't study them, but the smallest kinds of black holes that would be stellar mass black holes. So those are those are black holes that have a mass comparable to like the sun in our solar system or a few um, suns in our solar system. And um, right, sort of when we think about sizes of black holes, I think the characteristic property most people think about is sort of the size of the event horizon of of a black hole, which. Unfortunately, I don't have that off the top of my head for like a for like a solar mass black hole, but it it would be um it's pretty um it's well, I know the formula for it. I, I I'm not even gonna try and give you a number just because I feel like I'll I'll totally mess it up. But these um I think this is actually an interesting um this is actually an interesting point to make because one of the important features for making these measurements, at least for the supermassive side of things is that um, we really need high um, resolution as we need, we need really big telescopes to see that close in to the centers of these galaxies. And so I don't know if this is helpful, but essentially you need to be able to see on scales pretty much where the black hole like influences the stuff in its vicinity, like by its gravity. Um, and even for like the, quote unquote nearby galaxies by nearby still I mean that's still like uh like millions of light years away um in terms of like a size that's projected on the on the sky um that we need to be able to resolve with telescopes that is about that's about that's about 0.1 arc second so um an arc second is what one let's say one four thousandth of a of a degree and so we need a tenth of that on the sky so it's a very 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 small angle on the sky, but even these massive black holes—that's kind of the—that's kind of the the region in space that we have to be able to look at to to see the the effects of the of their gravity. Um, so I, was, I wish it would be more helpful with shore shield radii, but I just don't know them off the top of my head. No, it's all good. Uh, I think for a solar mass black hole, it's like on the order of like kilometers or something like that. I don't know because we just went over it in class today because we're studying oh. literally today because we were studying uh, accretion disks uh, in our high energy class. So oh, that's sick. Yeah, I think one of our problems was like look at a solar mass black hole, or he was talking about a solar mass black hole, and then he said something about the Schwarzschild radius being like something on orders of kilometers. So I think it's like that. I, I know for like the I know for like the Earth, if you turn like the Earth into a black hole, you have to shrink it down to like a centimeter or like the size of like a peanut or something like that. That's kind of like 
that's kind of like what the source shield radius would like how much like mass you have to stuff into to get a black hole um if it's like an earth if it's got an earth mass of stuff um so yeah it's uh the scales are actually not that big it's the mass that's that's uh the impressive part i think definitely yeah so yeah your research is really interesting um thank you yeah definitely uh, I want to read your paper when I get a chance. I haven't got to it, yet, but I'm excited to, especially after you're hearing your presentation. Um, oh, appreciate it. So, yeah. So now we're going to get a little bit into your background. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, when did you know that you wanted to study astrophysics? Oh, this is a really good question. There's actually like two distinct points in time um, where I kind of wanted to do it. So the first time was in high school. I read Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. Um, very popular and famous book he wrote that is for like a non-technical audience. And it was uh, explaining sort of his work on like cosmology, expansion of the universe, the big bang, black holes, that kind of thing. And I was just taking my first physics class at the time. I believe I was like a junior in high school. And uh, I was just really like, oh, this is so cool. Like, this is really awesome how physics can be taken from inclined planes and dropping balls off buildings to like studying the universe and its expansion and black holes and stuff like that. Um, but then when I, I went to undergraduate, I did a general physics degree, but there was no um, astrophysics courses or astronomy courses at UC Merced at the time. There now is, but when I went there to undergrad, there just, there wasn't. So I just didn't get a chance to really study like that kind of material. And so when I went to graduate school, I actually went to graduate school thinking I was going to do like condensed matter, like nanomaterials, quantum materials kind of stuff. Um, but then I just realized I didn't really like it as much as I thought I did, uh, especially because now I had the opportunity to study astrophysics finally. So it was like probably sometime early in the first year of graduate school where I kind of just switched from thinking I was going to do like the experimental condensed matter route and just being like, oh, I really want to study black holes now because I've never had a chance to learn about them before and now I, I can, so I will, yeah. That's awesome. I'm glad it worked out in the end. It's so crazy that you went in though, like not really like knowing for sure or kind of having your eyes open. I feel like that doesn't normally happen for people. So I'm happy that it worked out for you. Um, But how was it like growing up Filipino? Like I, I personally don't know any Filipino astrophysicist. So how did that impact you? And like, when you see the people that are in the field with you and you notice like the lack of representation, not just of Asians, but like Southeast Asians specifically, how does that like make you feel? And, and why do you think that is the case? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I will say, even though there is not that many of us out there that, um, I have been fortunate enough to connect with some of the current, you know, Filipino astrophysicists um, out there at all levels. So just to give shout outs, if, if I may, you know, got a, got a shout out like Flip Tenetto over at um, UC Riverside. He does technically dark matter stuff, but I think he considers himself a particle physicist, but still awesome. Um, you've got uh, Dr. Mia Dilas Reyes, who just graduated from Caltech, who's now at Stanford. Um, there's Drea Carrillo, who I believe is now postdoc in Durham. Um, so she's a doctor now as well. Um, Sabrina Berger over at McGill, she's of Filipino descent doing stuff with Chime, which is a radio array. And then I'm sorry if I'm going to forget someone. I, I, people watch this and feel mad. I'm so sorry, but it's I'm doing this on the spot. And then, of course, there's Hillary Andalas over at MIT, who's an undergraduate finishing up her undergraduate degree. And I've had the, the pleasure of connecting with um, them either through um, in person or over social media. So I think that's been awesome. But to get back to um, your original question in terms of, yeah, growing up and and um, not really seeing uh, others like me in the field. I mean, I think I definitely found it discouraging at times. Um, I would say that I didn't face perhaps um, just outright maybe discrimination um, when I was, you know, majoring in physics as like an undergraduate, you see Merced, uh, I, you know, occasionally maybe would get some comments like, oh, you know, you're not someone who I would think would study physics, you know, you're not someone who kind of looks like 
who would do physics, that kind of thing. Um, but nothing, thankfully, more extreme than that. Um, but, you know, um, definitely just tried to um, just do the best that I can and um, be a role model for others like me. And as to why I think there is, isn't, um, you know, uh, more of us out there, um, I can't really speak for maybe all of South, uh, all Southeast Asians, but I can say from like a Filipino background, I think just there are um, maybe a couple of cultural factors that play into that, that is, um, that would make it maybe more difficult for someone in this, um, of this descent to, to pursue this career. So for example, I think um, as in a lot of cultures, like family is such a really big um, part of the culture and um, back in the Philippines or even the United States for families that have immigrated, there is usually maybe multiple generations living under a roof. And so it's um, maybe not so encouraged for someone to just sort of um, go off and you know pursue an advanced degree somewhere else for five plus years and then go and try and secure an academic job that takes you know much longer uh, far away. So I think that's one um, key obstacle. I think also there is unfortunately um, I can see this in my own family there you know there are um, there can be conversations that might discourage someone from pursuing um, a degree that might not have maybe um, just uh, inherent value just in terms of like getting a really good job afterwards like if you're if you know people might think if you study physics why don't you just do like engineering um, uh, or go and be a doctor or a lawyer um, there's definitely um, been conversations with my family, not to me directly, but with people I know who have been, you know, discouraged from pursuing certain careers because they have been seen as, you know, not having that much utility. So there is um, sort of that aspect to it as well. And I just have to say that I think I'm actually quite fortunate because I, I didn't really have those, um, those um, pressures on me. I think um, I was lucky enough to have a family who uh, encouraged me to just study what I thought was interesting and not try to influence my direction one way or the other and not um, pressure me into being someone I didn't want to be. So I think that's that's um, one key reason as to why I've been able to do this, but I understand that it's not that, that not everyone has that scenario. And I, I hope that it um, gets better over time because I think um, and we can definitely make a difference um, in this field. Yeah, I hope so too. I'd love to see more Filipinos and Asians in general just be in the field because there's so much that we can provide. Um, but you mentioned earlier that you just studied physics um, at Merced because they didn't have any astronomy classes. What was that like for you? Like, did you actually enjoy your time there? even though you were studying something you weren't super into or like did you were you able to join clubs or anything that was about astronomy yeah um so I would say I still found my major very interesting like I, I do love physics to its core like it is definitely the subject that um you know and of course astrophysics and astronomy is a, is a part of that that I now specialize in um but I yeah I mean I found the major um quite enjoyable because it was I think it was the least populated major in all of campus I think you could fit all of every physics major from all four years onto one sheet of paper like one side which is kind of interesting so it was a very small and tight-knit major you got to know everyone in your year in the years ahead or before you and um, the class sizes were very small so the professors were um, like very easily accessible um, we were a very close um, group of students. Like my graduating class, I think had six graduating physics majors. So, you know, we had been through all of the sort of upper division classes together and gotten to know each other very well. And, um, you know, I didn't really, I mean, like I said, there was no astronomy there whatsoever. And um, now that I think about it, there was a, there was a, a class that was offered once every three years on um, like modern astrophysics and, it was supposed to be available my senior year. So I thought I would have one chance of like, I'll finally get to like study like astrophysics finally, just even just one time. Um, and then they couldn't find anyone to teach the class. So it didn't end up happening. So um, 
yeah, I mean, I was part of the Society of Physics Students, which is a, a, a you know an organization for um, physics students to you know bond over physics and um, do outreach and um, you know, communicate our interest in physics to a wider audience. But yeah, there really wasn't any like astronomy specific stuff for me to do uh, at Merced at the time, but it didn't stop me from you know going into it in, in grad school. So you also had two very different research experiences during your undergraduate career. Um, so you mentioned that you uh, did condensed matter physics research at uh, UC Merced, and then you also had a NASA internship. Mm -hmm. So can you describe your experiences doing both of these research um, research projects and sort of your takeaways from them? Yeah. Um, so, right. So I did condensed matter physics for about two years, starting like in the summer between my second and third year in undergraduate and that pretty much was like the group and the research I did until I graduated um so it's been a while but <laughs> essentially what I was um studying was I was studying these two different materials one of them um is, are called quantum dots these are these like nanoparticle um objects that will emit a very specific type of light so they're pretty much made of these chemicals that when you shine like light on them, they will emit light of a certain color. They're they're used in like LED TVs um, now. I guess there's like quantum LED TVs these days. I'm not so sure. Um, that's that's what I would, I would always bring up as allocation at the time. Um, so there's these quantum dots, and then there were these other materials called liquid crystals, which are like kind of this quasi other state of matter between like a liquid and a solid, where you have like not as random of like molecular disorder as in a liquid, but you have less order than you have in a solid. And um, essentially what I was doing, I was putting these quantum dots into these liquid crystals. And the reason why I was doing that is because the applicability of quantum dots um, comes in when you can sort of arrange them in specific geometries, if you can get them to form in certain shapes. But because they're like very small, it's really hard to just manufacture them in certain specific geometries. And it would have been much easier if you can just get something like very something something that's very malleable and and tunable um, in terms of a shape, like a liquid crystal, which responds very well to like electric and magnetic fields. Or you, if you put it on like a hot plate and change the temperature, it'll change its shape. Um, and so I spent like two years putting quantum dots into these liquid crystals and I would, you know, um, made, I feel like I made dozens, if not hundreds of samples that uh, took like 12 hours to make start to finish, which was just like brutal. Um, and, you know, I think the thing I took away from that experience, even though it ultimately was not the thing I continued doing in graduate school, um, it definitely pushed me out of my comfort zone for the long, because for the longest time I, just didn't think I could work in a lab setting because um, I don't know. I've never been that confident in my like ergonomic skills of like mixing chemicals and using hot plates and using an oven and all these kind of technical equipment. Uh, but I did it for two years somehow. Um, got better at it, but uh, I don't think I ultimately found it to be the thing that I wanted to do forever. And I think that's okay. I think I took away um, that it's definitely fine to like try something new, push yourself out of your comfort zone and, you know, just push it to as far as you can take it really. And so I wrote a whole senior thesis about it. Um, you know, I don't really know what my group did with the work I did afterwards, but, you know, it was definitely a learning experience. And I, you know, it was my first ever research experience. So like taught me just the the trials and tribulations of, you know, being stuck on something and having to, um, you know, work through difficult times. One of the interesting things I I I, I don't really miss as an uh, experimentalist is like you're very limited to like the materials you have available in labs. So like I remember there was like one period in time where we were running low on like a certain chemical and like, but everyone in the group kind of needed to use it. So we had to like ration the use of this chemical. It was like, yeah, we can't order this chemical for like another month. So everyone has to just like make do with like 20 milliliters of whatever this was. And I don't know, it was just funny to have those constraints on me, which I don't have really in astronomy. Um, so that's that's one thing I don't really miss. But um, 
the second experience was in between actually the, the first one. So I, I did um I did a internship in the NASA Student Airborne Research Program, which is um, acronym is SARP, and uh, that was in between the summers of my junior and my senior year. So that was just one summer after um, the first research experience, and that was um, also something like just completely out of my um, area of comfort, which was I, I did research that summer on atmospheric chemistry. And so I asked a question because we were kind of tasked with like, come up with a research question that you would like to try and answer with like available NASA data. Um, and at the time we were just getting out of a pretty bad drought in California. Uh, I think it ended in 2016, but from like 2011 to 2016, there was um, a drought in California. And I was just curious, like the, the simple question I had was just like, how does, um, how does drought um, affect um, pollution in the um, sort of the southern part of California, which is where we were at the time. And, you know, I think the thing that that this experience taught me was of, of one of the many things, at least, is that you can ask a very simple question, but it'll have a very um, complex and difficult answer that you might not get to in just eight weeks of a of an internship. Um, but I was using these models in MATLAB where I would be, it's, uh, MATLAB's this program that was very common in, apparently for NASA scientists to use in, in this program. And I was pretty much modeling the production of ozone, which as you know, is, is important to our atmosphere. We always talk about like the ozone layers is, you know, is healing or being destroyed. And um, one thing I learned is that there's so much chemistry going on um, out in the sky that is hard to like, it's really hard to say how like, how, you know, the reduction or the increase of one thing, does it necessarily imply the increase or reduction of another thing? Because it's like, you have all these different chemical pathways that affect each other. And, you know, the thing though, that was interesting about it was I ended up focusing on like, on drought. Um, right, because that was sort of the initial question I asked, and I was thinking about how you know drought just, just sort of like logically you think okay well drought that means you know, a lot of plants are going to die if they don't have water right, and plants emit um, quite a bit of chemicals that play a role in our atmosphere. So I was looking at um, the role of um, of this one chemical called called isoprene, which is a which is a, is a uh, common plant um, chemical that is released. And I wasn't able to get my hands on that much data, but it did seem from what I was able to get my hands on that indeed there was a decrease in isoprene levels in um, that sort of that drought period, which maybe was not too surprising. Um, I wasn't able to fully tie it into what I had done completely that summer by the end of the eight weeks. But the, the cool thing is that actually one of my friends in the program who ended up staying with the same professor who we were working with as a graduate student, she ended up writing her first paper sort of on the foundation of like, you know, how, how does isoprene play a role in like ozone production? So um, that was actually ended up being the first paper I ever was like a co-author on. And I had just no idea she had like, you know, taken the stuff I had done, you know, a couple of years ago and now had turned into like, you know, a, a solid paper of hers. So um, again, yeah, just having, you know, simple questions can lead to really, um, profound answers. And one thing I'd like to say about the program itself is that it was just so cool to be a part of a program that brought in so many different kinds of, of um, college majors at the time. So they brought in like, you know, I was a physics major, but my my sort of little team of eight other students or seven other students, there was eight of us in that group, 32 overall. So there were four groups, but in our little group of eight, we had like couple of physics majors, a couple of chemistry majors, mechanical engineering major, geology, computer science. It was like a real big collective of different skills and backgrounds. And it was so cool to see how everyone's different area of expertise really played a role in solving this really complex problem. Um, and, you know, whenever I wouldn't know anything about the chemistry, I could easily just talk to someone in my group about, you know, I don't know anything about isoprene. Like, what, what is it? And like, that kind of stuff, or if someone didn't really know how to use MATLAB, we had, I had some experience with it. There was also a mechanical engineer who um, also used MATLAB a lot. So I remember having a lot of MATLAB tutorial sessions with people just showing them how to use it. So that was really fun. I think that um, just the value of collaboration and teamwork in a diverse interdisciplinary um, team 
was um, just amazing. And I think that, um, you know, I really value that kind of uh, experience uh, in my current research today. Those both sound like such great growing experiences. And yeah, the NASA internship for sure cultivates like good work area, like workplace skills and collaboration skills. That's awesome. Um, we're just going to move on a little bit to now your grad school, like application process. What was that like for you? Just in general, why did you decide on Irvine? Where else did you apply? Oh, man. Um, it has been a while, but um, I can tell you why Irvine. Irvine was the only school that accepted me, so that makes it easy uh, in terms of choosing. Um, it was a very difficult time, to be honest, in my life at that point. I think, um, well, I don't think, I know. I mean, I was, um, so someone in my family, um, a relative of mine who was, I was really close to passed away like that fall during like the application period, so it was a very sad time. Um, in my life. And, you know, I was trying to balance, you know, that as well as, you know, taking classes still as a, as a senior, trying to work. I had a job at the time as an undergraduate, so I had a job, um, still doing research in the experimental condensed matter lab, studying for the physics and the general GRE, and applying to like that schools, trying to balance all of that. That was just, I don't know, I don't think I did that. Um, looking back, I would have maybe changed some things I did, but I think there were some things that were just unavoidable and like, I couldn't really help. Um, so yeah, that was, that was, it was difficult. Um, I think though, um, I think, yeah, I mean, in terms of like the application process, it was definitely, um, one thing I will say, it was, it was definitely tough to like come up and I'm having kind of the similar issue right now is like with like postdoc apps it's like coming up with like good ideas to pitch to grad schools and saying like this is kind of what I want to do for grad school and like this is the the research I I'm you know committed to doing for the next five or six years um and yeah I think if I could go back in time I would definitely tell my younger self um to get more feedback on your ideas. And that's something I still struggle with today. Like, I don't know, I, I think it's imposter syndrome, but I think when you're a young scientist, you have a lot of doubt perhaps in your own ability and you can tend to maybe downplay your own um, intelligence and abilities to the point where you are just almost sort of afraid of like trying. So I definitely didn't give myself the chance to get a, a solid feedback for all my apps as I should have. So I, I, I actually considered myself lucky that I was still able to get into graduate school somehow um, during that period. But yeah, that's what I remember of it at the time. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really difficult. And I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that your relative passed. Um, and yeah, just imagining juggling all of that during the grad school process, which I mean, I went through two years ago now almost mm -hmm. which is kind of crazy but yeah that was also a really difficult time for me and just having everything that you had going on in addition to all those apps sounds really difficult so I'm sure you did as best of a job as you could have appreciate it um so now getting into your time at Irvine um you've spent quite a bit of time there um I just had to graduate this year mm -hmm. uh so what were some of the hurdles that you had to overcome well, during your time at Irvine, and also some of the milestones that you reached during your time there. Could you sort of share some of your experiences? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a good question. Um, in terms of like hurdles that I've had to clear, I think one of the biggest hurdles was just switching into like astrophysics, having absolutely like zero like experience in it. Um, I thankfully had an advisor who was very encouraging and um, you know, I just told them, look, I don't have any experience whatsoever, but, you know, I'm willing to learn, um, you know, do you have any advice for me? Um, because he uh, was looking for a new graduate student at the time because his current one was um, was graduating that year. And so, um, you know, he just told me that, you know, if I'm really interested, you know, here's a book, here's like, some papers, you know, dig into them a bit, take this class with me in the spring. Um, and, you know, like, and we'll see where it goes. So 
you know, I, I was very fortunate that my advisor, who interestingly enough, also didn't really have that much astronomy experience going into graduate school himself, um, was willing to take a chance on me. And I, I remember also him asking if I had uh, a lot of experience with Python programming. And um, I mean, sort of, I kind of did, but not really. That's probably to the, the level that he thought I did. Um, so that was also a little bit like of a challenge to just sort of teach myself like a new language from scratch to, you know, this, this project um, he gave me. So I think taking the class with him and doing well in that class with him was definitely one hurdle that was clear that I was really happy about because I, I knew nothing before. It seemed like everyone in the class um, had, you know, they had been like an astrophysics or astronomy emphasis, um, you know, for their, for their undergraduate degree. Um, and so just learning, like I had never heard of what like a, a color magnitude diagram was or like a, what a globular cluster was or just these, these terms that are just thrown around in astronomy that um, I just had no idea. So that was um, definitely a hurdle. I think one um, um, one other hurdle I had to clear, which was like uh, towards the, uh, I think it happened, yeah, it happened during the summer of my, like the first summer after my first year in grad school. So I just taken the astronomy class. I was just starting my PhD project that, you know, I was new to everything. Um, and then I, I was playing basketball on, I remember the day, it was July 5th, 2018, because the day before was July 4th. So like, that's why it was easy to remember, but I was playing basketball and then like I tore like a muscle in my left leg and it was just like, just really um, devastating, of course, I mean, it hurt. <laughs> and um, it pretty much set me up for like a, like a, well, I had to get surgery and then I had to like do like a year's worth of physical therapy just because I wanted to play basketball one day. Um, so that was definitely a hurdle trying to like balance like recovery as well as still, you know, trying to contribute to like this research project that I was a given and still taking classes in my second year. So um, that all culminated in, um, I guess, a little bit later, like almost a year later after the injury itself, like I, the one of the biggest first things I had to do for my research project was I, I was trying to build this this program in Python that would reproduce um, an already published result. And, um, you know, it, it was, um, I, I still can't even describe how like satisfying it felt to like see that my program was getting that like published results. So this was probably like in, I think March of 2019, I think. Yeah, it was like almost a year of working because I started in the summer before. So it was almost a full year, like probably like nine months of, trying to get to at least this point like can I get my program to like you know generate a published result before I can start applying it to like newer data sets so I can you know generate my own results like like in this paper for example and I remember I remember the moment where like it was funny too because I remember there was like a false moment of like joy where I was like oh I think I got it and it was like really satisfying but then I like looked over my code a bit more and I realized I didn't actually do it right and I was just like oh my gosh like no like I thought I had it um I even told my advisor I had it and I was like oh no I was wrong <laughs> and so I was trying to figure out okay can I can I like can I actually do it now can I actually fix this and get the thing I need and I did and it was just like wow like I could, that was kind of the first moment in grad school where I was like yeah I can do this like I can do this so that was um, that was definitely a hurdle, and I don't want to spend too much time on on the rest of the things. But I get some milestones. I'll just briefly say them. Um, a lot of them happened before COVID. So been able to travel a lot um, to some pretty awesome um, astronomical um, observatories and and um, learn like data reduction techniques. Actually observe on these telescopes. So for example, 2020 in January, I went to like Hawaii for like two weeks. Got to like go visit like Mauna Loa, got to visit the submillimeter array, got to um, help out on an observing run at Gemini Observatory. Um, also had a chance to visit the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, not in Hawaii, but um, on another trip. So I've, I've just had just um, the good fortune of my advisor being very encouraging to be like, hey, this is something you should probably consider. Um, this will definitely broaden your skill set. You'll learn a lot more than just, you know, staying in Irvine. Um, get hands-on experience and stuff. And so I think definitely getting to travel 
has been a highlight. Um, milestone publishing a paper, of course, that's that's a big one. And um, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to take up so much time with that, but there has been a lot for sure in five years. Yeah, you're good. Don't worry. We love to hear about accomplishments and we're really proud of you. And it's so awesome that you're almost done and like you can look back on everything like this. It must be crazy feeling right now, but it, it, is. it just shows that all your work and dedication paid off. So that's awesome. Thank you. Of course. Um, yeah, at Irvine, you were a, a mentor for the Cowbridge program, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and so you've throughout this interview have been stressing the importance of like mentorship and support network. So what what have your experiences been like with Calbridge? And like, is that something you would like want to continue doing the mentorship aspect? Yeah. Um, so Calbridge is just for people who are, are not aware, Calbridge is a program that helps students at the California State University schools. Um, um, have research opportunities. They pretty much get to do um, summer research at a University of California school because Cal States are typically not known for having a lot of research opportunity. They're more for um, getting students out there into the workforce. And then like the University of California schools are typically more research oriented and have more research opportunities. And so we take the, um, the program funnel students from the two um, schools. So um, I've had the opportunity to have um, three um, Three? Yeah, three summer undergraduate um, students who've pretty much wanted to do work on black holes in our in our group and um, essentially got paired with me to use the tools that I've built to um, weigh supermassive black holes. And so um, I will say that one of the one of the um, papers that I'm really close to getting out, hopefully by uh, October is a paper that used um, a lot of the work that was done by two of my former students um, where they were like the first person ever or first people ever to weigh the black holes in these two other galaxies. So um, I think it's just been absolutely awesome to, you know, see um, these students, you know, go from maybe not being very familiar with our, our, our research and then, you know, being able to, um, you know, teach them and show them how you know, the tools I've built work and then just letting them go off and, you know, weigh these black holes. Um, it's just, it's, you know, it's just so gratifying. And I think the next paper I'm going to publish um, with those results um, is going to be like my favorite one in all grad school, honestly, because it, you know, it's going to involve them. So, yeah, I mean, I've been a, like a research mentor for Calbridge. I've also been a tutor during the actual school year for a couple of students who, you know, need some just extra help with um, upper division physics classes. And so we'd meet, you know, once or twice a week and we'd go over, um, you know, I'd, I'd make a lesson plan and we'd go over the uh, material they've been studying. And, you know, I, it's, it's, it's awesome um, that they have this um, resource because, you know, it, it, I think it really goes to show, and I always stress this when I'm teaching students that it's like, the first time you see it in class, it's it's like don't feel bad if you don't get it. Like it usually takes me several several times to really fully understand something and understand it in a way that makes sense to me. And then the challenge is trying to communicate that to them. Um, and you know, I've had some of these students. I mean, one of them is now a um, PhD student at UC Irvine now, and I remember them telling me that you know. Uh, with like my tutoring sessions, it really helped them get through those last few years in undergrad. So it just, you know, those are the kind of the moments, you know, as an educator, you just really love and, you know, that's what you strive for. Definitely. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And it's great that those results are going to go into an actual paper. So I'm, I'm sure that feeling is really amazing. So yeah, that's really awesome to hear. Um, so now uh, getting to your YouTube channel. So mm -hmm. We know during your time in grad school, you started a YouTube channel that is very successful with almost 3.5K subscribers. Uh, so what was it like creating this channel? Um, and what have you sort of taken away from it? Yeah, I would be a little bit careful saying very successful, but maybe that's just me just not wanting to like, you know, brag about it. But um, I, you know, it's interesting. I started this channel um, same time when I got hurt, actually, because I was just stuck at home, like, 
all day, um, sort of recovering and waiting for like physical therapy appointments, but I just couldn't go out that much. And so I got this fairly nice camera that I, I, I remember I've always been kind of into like, like technology and like camera and microphones. I mean, you can see this right here. Um, so I've always been interested in like film and video making from a young age. Um, and so, you know, just having all that free time to just sit around and just think, um, and um, think of video ideas. I, I initially started out by just making like videos of me like solving physics problems because as you know, I like I like to teach. Obviously I was a tutor. Um, I think video um, and like education through resources on the internet now are, are, are really huge. And I think we're still not quite making, taking full advantage um, of what's possible um, in terms of revolutionizing education. Um, for, you know, on a, on a bigger scale outside of maybe the traditional sort of school system. Um, but anyways, I just really wanted to, you know, just try my hand. I'm like, yeah, I want to, I like watching like Khan Academy, for example, when I was younger. So I was like, I kind of want to make my own kind of videos, just see how that goes. And um, I, I think, you know, the, the, the process of making videos um, has really allowed me to um, tap into sort of like the, the creative side of me. Cause that's something I feel like I didn't really get to express so much, maybe my first year in graduate school, because I was just sort of taking classes, trying to study for like a very hard test at the end of the year. Um, there really wasn't a lot of time for me to do things outside of just always thinking of physics. And in a, in a funny way, the video still made me think about physics, but in a, I guess, much more enjoyable way. And I guess having the initial feedback from people saying, hey, I really like your videos. Um, I'd make videos on like just things I found interesting in physics. Like, I don't know. I, I, I like to um, just find, I like really old books. So I have a lot of like really old books I have. Um, and I would just, you know, buy these books and be like, you know, this is a good book or this is not a good book or why do I like this book? Or I like solving a problem out of this book. I'm, I'm a big fan of history. Um, I, this is, this is a funny story. I almost majored in history in, in college. Cause I, that was my favorite subject in high school. Um, and so, um, had a little bit of a chance to, to insert like physics history here and there in some of my videos. One of my favorite videos that I've, I've made is like on the story of, um, Supermanian Chandrasekhar, who won the Nobel prize in 1983 for his work on, on white dwarfs and stellar evolution. But, how his idea at the time was really like ridiculed by the um, sort of the top people in astrophysics at the time. And um, the story was just really compelling to me. And I, I really wanted to make a video kind of, go, kind of going through the timeline of that um, whole ordeal for him and um, inserting some, you know, just some educational bits about physics, but like, what did he actually, um, what did he actually discover? And um, I just loved looking through all the different primary sources of, of historical accounts of interactions between him and like Sir Arthur Eddington, who was like the main guy, just not really buying into his ideas. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely, um, the channel is kind of, my channel is definitely um, varied. Like I have videos of all different kinds. I mean, that's one of its own kind. I have vlogs on there. I have, um, skits of me just portraying moments in graduate school that are funny to me um and then of course the book reviews but i think the channel has just taught me to really just embrace being myself and just being willing to put that out there and willing to take whatever um comes my way because obviously i think you know you really can't please everyone in terms of being a content creator there's going to be people who just don't find your style of videos entertaining or they don't like your humor or whatever, but, you know, I just keep trying to remind myself that, you know, there is an audience for what I do and, you know, I'll, I'm doing it for them. And, um, you know, uh, I think it's, it's great that you know, I have this, I have this outlet, honestly, and it's been, um, I've had, you know, to connect with some awesome uh, people through it um, in physics. And so I, I hope to keep um, making content. I've, I've kind of slowed down a bit in the past couple of months, just because it's gotten kind of crazy right now during job search time and teaching and still, you know, doing research and writing a dissertation. So um, I would like to 
continue it for sure. I hope you continue it too, because that does sound like a really nice outlet and to just have all your interests like in one place. So I hope you can find the time eventually. Me too. So it seems that you're kind of starting to like wrap things up on that last paper um, and things are kind of moving forward with your thesis. So like, what are the final steps that you have to take within the next year to sort of wrap everything up? <sighs> In terms of just the research side of things, um, apart from like wrapping things up as a, 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 like applying for jobs is one thing that has to get done and having a position to go to afterwards. But besides that, um, yeah, I mean, now that the framework that I've built in Python has now been successfully, you know, been tested and it's, you know, it's, I have a published work out there on it. I have the, the fortune of, well, I, we just have had a lot of data collected over the past several years since I've been part of the group that just has not been able to been pushed through my 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 program yet and so when i first started this project like five four years ago actually because i started um, at the end of my first year when i first started this project four years ago my advisor and i were talking about all the different like features we'd want my framework to have and how many data sets i'd want to like probably do by the time i was done and as with most plans in graduate school um things didn't go quite according to plan um but that's okay because you know I still have a lot of data sets that I can um, push my um, I can put through my program. And I, I'm in sort of the fortunate position where it's not so much that I'm worried about having a thesis done. Like I, I definitely feel like um, you know, the work I have published now and then the paper with the, the two undergraduate students that I'm hoping to write, which will, probably not be the last paper I write in grad school, but it could be. Um, they'll definitely be part of the thesis. And then after that, it's really a matter of how much of the original plan can I get done before June, 2023. And, you know, having talks with my advisor, you know, it's, it's not a problem that I didn't do everything in the plan. I mean, it's, you know, you have the plan there, but you don't necessarily have to like meet it all the way. So my own personal goal is to try and publish at least two more papers before um, I graduate. So I have one that's almost finally written up. That's with the two other students. So that will be submitted hopefully in October. And then the last um, paper possibly is going to be a, a black hole mass measurement on a galaxy that my own advisor measured the black hole of a few, um, well, like 20 years ago now at this point. And um, we're going to do a comparison study, and I, I'm really excited to do, to do that because that's been one target that I've been hearing um, nonstop since I started the program, how that would be a great, you know, uh, comparison to to use sort of the techniques I've developed throughout my PhD and compare it to what my advisor did back in 2000, 2001. So um, I guess if you're writing a story, that would be a very fitting <laughs> final project to do in graduate school. But if there's time, I would love to apply my 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 work, my code to more data sets, but that's most likely where things will end by the time I'm done. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, so good luck. Very Thank excited you. to uh, look forward to your new papers and the results that you're going to find in them. So um, now looking a little bit into the future, so post PhD, do you have any plans? You mentioned earlier that you're applying to postdocs. So mm -hmm. do you sort of see yourself staying in academia or moving in industry or a different field. So what sort of um, do you sort of imagine the next couple of years being like for you? Yeah, thank you for this question. I actually wanted to bring this up because um, if people have been following my Twitter over the past couple of months. They may have seen um, maybe a bit more of an emotional side of me where I've been a little bit pessimistic about staying in academia. And that has changed since about a month ago. Um, I recently went to a conference with um, a black hole conference and I met some amazing people in the field. Some of them were my collaborators who I just haven't had a chance to meet in person before. And it just kind of revitalized me in, in terms of just feeling like, you know, I can do this. Like I, I, I belong here. And so I, I decided because a month ago I was like pretty sure I was not gonna apply for any postdocs. And now I am like a few hours away from submitting my first one, um, so first app, so. Um, I, I, I give them all the credit for, for getting me back into the game, so to speak. Um, but I, I will say that I 
don't really have strong feelings one way or the other. I've kind of just made it a personal decision to just give it everything I got this year and just live with the results because that's really all one can really do. So I am definitely going to be applying for postdocs. Uh, I'll also be applying for um, industry jobs as well. There are also some education jobs that I thought were kind of interesting that I've, I've looked at in terms of like maybe working at a museum as like a science educator. Um, so I'm just really open to whatever is out there for me. And um, I just think that I'm just going to just try my best um, at this academia thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of all the potential pitfalls and the other options for me. Um, but I just feel like I owe it to myself to just try as hard as I can to stay. And if not, then that's just what it is. And I'll be fine doing something else. I could, I could make a whole maybe YouTube career out of it. I don't know. So yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it. That's great. You really can't knock something until you try it. And yeah, you, your backup plans and your other options are still wonderful. So you're in a really good spot and that's exciting. Thank you. Um, but we're gonna, we're at the end of our interview now. So okay. we're going to close off with some quick hitters. Okay. Um, so my first one for you is what are your three favorite Filipino foods and your one favorite Filipino dessert? Okay. So, um, <laughs> Filipino foods number one's got to be lumpia which is like spring rolls with like meat and vegetables and them very classic Filipino snack um second I'd probably have to say chicken adobo which is like this sweet and like sort of savory um dish so it's like chicken thighs or drumsticks and you have like soy sauce garlic black pepper my mom would make it a lot um, when I was a kid. So that's just a staple of my childhood diet. Um, and then uh, third probably would be this dish called pancit, which is like rice um, noodles. And you have like meat that could be like chicken or pork, shrimp even, and then also vegetables mixed in with that. So yeah, those got to be my top three that um, I like. And then in terms of dessert, um, I don't know. I've been eating a lot of ube ice cream lately, which has just been like so good. So yeah, ube, it's purple yam um, thing that um, is really tasty ice cream when you make it into ice cream. So those are all those are all fire. Those are <laughs> probably all, almost all of my favorites. Simi can attest. There you go. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So we also know the next question. Uh, we know you're from the Bay. Uh, mm -hmm. and then so you're happy the Warriors won so as was yep. I so yes. who are your uh, three favorite Warriors players oh three favorite Warriors players I have such a basic answer but I think it's in an order that might surprise people so in order I think it's it, in order it's got to be Clay Thompson Steph Curry and then Draymond Green which is like very surprising I think to a lot of people I think the reason why I have Clay Thompson ahead of Steph is just because I think he is such he's such an unsung hero and he's very clutch and it's like if he if Steph wasn't there he'd be like you know seen as like one of the best shooters of all time but because he plays with Steph he kind of takes a back seat but he's cool with it um and he's just so versatile you know like he he plays offense and defense really well but I think he's overshadowed like offensively by Steph and defensively by Draymond so people don't really think of him as like like the main person for those reasons but he's just He's, he's just all about winning. And so, you know, I really think, you know, he's someone I like to look up to, I guess. I respect that. I really like Clay too. And he's very resilient. So yes, <laughs> yes. Definitely... And he also had, a, had an injury too. Yes. Um, so I relate to that strongly. Okay. Next one. Um, we know you're in Irvine. Mm -hmm. So what are your three favorite restaurants? You have so many options. Oh man, this is so hard. Um, okay. Um, three favorite restaurants in Irvine. So there is, I don't even know the name of it, but it's, it's this sushi place that has like a, it's like, has like the rotating, um, sushi trays like essentially you just got like you can just like you can just grab stuff off the conveyor belt and like you get i can't remember the name of it which i'm really sad it's is in, it kura i think it is kura yes it is kura 
Yeah. So Cora Sushi, it's definitely got to be one. Um, I haven't been to it that many times, but when I have been to it, Hiro Nori like ramen um, is like so delicious. I wish I'd go there more often. I should just go there more often. Um, and then third, man, this is so hard. There's there's a lot of really good places, but um, third, I already did a sushi place. I think I might go with, oh, no, there's an Amici, there's a place called Amici's Pizza, which is also, it's probably my favorite pizza place in Irvine. So I feel like that has to be the third one because I love pizza. Like pizza's like one of my, pizza and sushi are like my two favorite foods. So it's like, I have to have at least one of each on this top three list. Yeah. Those all sound really good. I haven't had dinner yet, so. Neither have I, so you're much later than I am, so. <laughs> uh, so our last quick hitter is mm-hmm. uh, your three favorite facts about black holes. Oh, gosh. Okay, three favorite facts about black holes. Um, well, one of them is that I like is that if you were to fall towards a black hole, and you went past the event horizon, people on the outside would, would it would take like an infinite amount of time for you to actually like cross like that boundary because light would no longer like reach like the people watching you. Like it, you would just sort of fade into nothingness, but it would take an infinite, technically an infinitely long amount of time. Um, I like how they just, I don't know. I just like how mysterious they are. Like, I just like how you can describe them with just three parameters, like mass, spin, and charge. It's just like, you think they're more complicated, but all, all you really need to do is just specify those three numbers and you kind of know everything you need to know about them and the environment that they they occupy. Um, and what else? One also thing I love is that they radiate, um, that essentially if you have two supermassive black holes that merge or any, you know, size black holes that merge, they will produce gravitational radiation. And I will say I was in a science writing class in this in like the winter of 2015 before the LIGO discovery of gravitational waves. And I remember being the only physics person in this class and talking about gravitational waves the entire semester because that was the topic I had chosen. And I always had to say like, oh, well, we haven't discovered that yet. It's not like, you know, we're still in the process of discovering it, but like, we're pretty sure they exist. And, you know, I had a lot of kind of skeptics, like, oh, you know, what, what are these gravitational waves? Like, that's kind of weird. Like, does it really bend space-time? Like, what, what does that even mean? And then, like, you know, six months later, LIGO comes out with the discovery of, of gravitational waves. And it was it was a very, like, validating feeling, just being like, yes, like, aha, take that, people. Like, the real. So, yeah, those are the three, three facts. Yeah, all really interesting facts. Um, yeah, thanks, Kyle. Uh, that yeah, is no the end of our interview. So we really appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you, you having me. Yeah, learned a lot. It was great to hear your story. Uh, I now subscribe to your YouTube channel. So it's almost at three. I will too. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Thanks so much for coming again. Okay. Yeah, no problem. Th- thanks for having the show. Of course, Kyle. Thanks. <laughs>